to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movement shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we're talking about reactions to the anti-Afghan rhetoric in Biden's speech on Afghanistan yesterday, a questionable report about war crimes committed by Hamas against Israel from Human Rights Watch, and it's Tuesday. So it's time for our weekly Tech for the People segment. And later in our show, starting at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be opening the phone lines to you. But before we can move on... Biden said in his speech yesterday, we went to Afghanistan almost 20 years ago with clear goals. Get those who attacked us on September 11, 2001 and make sure Al Qaeda could not use Afghanistan as a base from which to attack us again. We did that. We severely degraded Al Qaeda in Afghanistan. We never gave up the hunt for Osama bin Laden and we got him. That was a decade ago. Our mission in Afghanistan was never supposed to have been nation building. It was never supposed to be creating a unified, centralized democracy. Our only vital national interest in Afghanistan remains today what it had always been, preventing a terrorist attack on American homeland. First of all, I hate that nationalistic jingoism homeland, but that's what y'all's president said yesterday in his speech about the inevitable unfolding chaos in Afghanistan. And the man was belligerent, I think, in saying the quiet part about U.S. imperialism in the country out loud. He might as well have stood at the podium and said, we went into Afghanistan for payback against the terrorists we helped create when we used the Afghan people to fight the Soviet Union in the 80s. And that's all we cared about. We did that. And to hell with them people and their country. Then Biden had the unmitigated and repulsive gall to blame the Afghans for not fighting for their country, for their future. He said those words, and and I can't even say what I really want to right here, but let's never, ever forget that by the time Osama bin Laden was found in Pakistan, by the way, not Afghanistan, 10 years after the U.S. invasion into the country, Afghanistan had been ravaged by war and U.S. operations that were supposed to include reconstruction efforts weren't because the U.S. did not seriously plan for it, not with the requisite manpower, not with the proper understanding of the politics of the country, not with the proper planning, not with the concern for the people of Afghanistan at all. It's Charlie Wilson's war all over again. Instead, the CIA, Washington politicians, U.S. military experts decided to centralize a U.S. fashioned government in Kabul instead and threw duffel bags and suitcases full of money at all those corrupt leaders who had as little in common with most of the people in Afghanistan as the U.S. military and contractors and mercenaries manipulating them did. And then the despicable arrogance of Biden dismissing the Afghan people as cowards or as too stupid to fight by saying we gave them every chance to determine their own future. What we could not provide them was the will to fight for that future. Oh, my God, that is horrifically devoid of any historical accuracy whatsoever. 
I told you yesterday that the Afghan people were struggling for their own self-determination, but the U.S. had to seize on that internal struggle to wage a proxy war against the Soviet Union. Biden said that they don't have the will to fight. The Afghan people have fought every interloper that came into their country that thought they would have a say in Afghanistan's affairs, and the Afghans sent all of them packing. They didn't have the will to fight? Man, the ahistorical white supremacist nerve of that man is, ooh, I can barely take it. And remember that the U.S. threw together an army in Afghanistan pretty much like they threw together the government. They pulled together the literal survivors of foreign wars in their country, the war-weary people whose cultures and beliefs the U.S. mocked, derided, dismissed, and had no interest in truly learning about. And instead of providing regional material support to people to uh, rebuild their communities, the U.S., in its infinite wisdom, armed those folks and told them to fight against the enemy that the U.S. pointed them toward, which was the enemy that the U.S. helped create in the first place. And the military brass and super smart consultants and CIA spooks and highly paid government hitmen, a.k.a. mercenaries, and the slick politicians in Washington thought the Afghan people in that army were too stupid to know this. So, of course, Biden's speech oozed with the hateful contempt that the U.S. military had for Afghans that was exposed by the Afghanistan papers that were published in 2019. In those documents, it was revealed that U.S. officials, quote, depicted the Afghan security forces as incompetent, unmotivated, poorly trained, corrupt, and riddled with deserters and infiltrators. But it turns out, It actually wasn't the Afghan forces that were corrupt and inept and poorly trained. It was the U.S. forces that were supposed to be training them. And do we seriously believe those Afghan people didn't know how much the U.S. military absolutely loathed them? This man stood at that podium last night and said that he told Afghan officials that, quote, Afghanistan should prepare to fight their civil wars after the U.S. military departed to clean up the corruption in government so the government can function for the Afghan people. Oh, the civil war the U.S. helped fuel after the U.S. armed Mujahideen pushed the Red Army out of the country? The corruption the U.S. government enabled by propping up greedy leaders who the U.S. paid with suitcase full of U.S. dollars? And then Biden said, the events we're seeing now are sadly proof that no amount of military force would ever deliver a stable, united, secure Afghanistan as known in history as the graveyard of empires, graveyard of empires. There's that despicable, dehumanizing phrase again. But of course, Biden would say it without thinking that he's relegating the whole country to a place where nothing worth anything lives as if it were not the people living in that country who sent empires running from their borders with their tails between their legs. And for the millionth time, it is not the job of outside military forces from other countries to make another country stable or united. Oh, the arrogance of American imperialist exceptionalism is just too much right now. Listen, let me be clear. I'm not at all arguing here that Biden should have kept troops in Afghanistan. That's that is a false response to pointing out the obvious outcome of U.S. imperialism. 
This is what U.S. imperialism always creates. And being honest about this is not the same as saying we want U.S. troops to stay in a country and continue imperialism. No, we need to be far more mature in the way we have these discussions, not resorting to ridiculous comebacks when U.S. imperialism is criticized like, oh, so you want the troops to stay? No, I do not. What I want, what every real anti-imperialist wants is for the crimes of this empire to be exposed and for the figurehead of the empire to not get away with those crimes by blaming the people in the crosshairs of the empire. In this case, the Afghan people. The truth is there was no failure in Afghanistan. This was the only conclusion possible to the U.S. policy that was explained by Biden in the beginning of his speech to protect the U.S. from the threat of terrorism on our shores, the terrorism that the U.S. helped to create in the country of Afghanistan. And the empire did that knowing full well that they had created terrorists and were terrorists on someone else's shores themselves. Biden just carried on the tradition of being U.S. imperialism's defender-in-chief at the expense of the Afghan people that U.S. imperialism has terrorized for more than 40 years. Follow Luke Mon Nation on patreon.com slash Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points. And you're listening by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik here in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. By any means necessary. And let's continue this conversation about Biden's speech regarding Afghanistan, the implications and what we should expect going forward. We're happy to be joined for this conversation by Medea Benjamin, co-founder of Code Pink Women for Peace. Medea, thank you so much for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me on. So Joseph Biden made his speech about Afghanistan last night and You know, I've got plenty of words for his speech, none of them good. Most of them I can't say on the air, Medea, but I am wondering about your uh, uh, first thoughts, your or or stream of consciousness, almost thoughts about the things he said in this speech last night, which I found incredibly objectionable. But I'm wondering what your response to the speech is. Well, I think it's kind of ironic that he says the buck stops here, but then he tried to blame everybody else for what's going on. Um, But, you know, I might have a different opinion than you in the sense that, you know, I think we've got to recognize um, that it is good that Biden has made the decision to take the troops out with all the pushback he's getting. He hasn't. Uh, well, he said that, that more troops are going back in. He says they're for evacuating. Um, he hasn't said we're getting back into this fight, although we don't know if the bombing has stopped yet. But I do think that it was incredibly botched the way he was leaving, but we don't want to confuse that uh, with the, the, the decision that was taken for U.S. troops to leave. Yeah, and I think that's the point of contention in the conversation about the situation in Afghanistan right now um, that I think people are having a difficult time with Medea. And I think that's an important distinction to make that criticism of 
especially Biden's comments about the chaos in Afghanistan, which isn't new, that it's been chaotic and horrific for the Afghani people for more than 20 years, it is being conflated with people, you know, obviously wanting to keep the troops in Afghanistan. And that's not the case because, you know, from my perspective, some of the things Biden said, like when you just mentioned, you know, he said the buck stops here, but then he blamed everybody else. I found it particularly insulting that Biden did a lot of blaming of the Afghan people themselves for the chaos in their country. But he didn't call attention to or he didn't he he wasn't honest at all about the fact that uh, the nation building that uh, he said the U.S. wasn't supposed to do wasn't even the issue. It's the fact that the U.S. shouldn't even have been in Afghanistan in the first place. And the fact that the government that they threw together, not with the input of the people of Afghanistan, was a completely U.S. creation that Biden supported. Uh, But he didn't give any mention to the chaos that created the presence of the United States being in the country created uh, the the political uh, machinations and, uh, you know, obviously the, the bombs and the death that was caused by the United States. He just blamed the Afghan people. And I found that incredibly, incredibly insulting. And, and I'm wondering what your thoughts are on on those kinds of comments that he made. Well, absolutely. And saying that the Afghan military didn't fight, the Afghan military has been fighting and dying uh, for the U.S. puppet regime for years now. And their massive casualties, uh, there's no comparison with the U.S., where in recent times uh, there haven't been the deaths of U.S. soldiers. So they're the ones that have been bearing the brunt, both the Afghan military and the police. And it irks me so much when uh, there is so much talk about corruption in Afghanistan, which there is, uh, but not about corruption in the U.S. contractors and the U.S. weapons manufacturers and the ones who really make the big bucks off of this war and want to perpetuate uh, U.S. war, not only in Afghanistan, but everywhere. Uh, I don't think we're going to get the truth out of an American president who would say we should never have been there to begin with. Um, We made a mess of this thing. Uh, We should demand accountability from general after general that told us that victory was just around the corner. Uh, We should fire everybody in military, quote, intelligence that couldn't even tell us that the Taliban uh, was about to take over Kabul. I mean, that's the kind of truth that we're not going to hear from a U.S. president. And we're not even going to hear, let's face it, from members of Congress. I don't even hear it from uh, the squad. Uh, It's us, the citizens, that are going to have to tell the truth about these 30 years of disgusting, utter, colossal uh, failure and destruction of Afghanistan. And then, um, you know, now, now it's very hard because, as you said, it's being used, the chaos now, as an excuse for those who want to keep us in these wars. So we have to be very careful that we say that uh, it is a good thing to get out. It's not a good thing to get out with, uh, uh, with this kind of chaos where you didn't even provide the visas for the people that you promised you would get them out. 
uh, it's not a good thing to close the embassy. Um, there's really actually no reason to be closing the U.S. embassy. Uh, and we're going to need diplomacy. Whether we like the Taliban or not, that's who we're going to have to deal with. So this kind of straightforward talk uh, is something that's going to have to come from us on up uh, because we don't get the truth uh, from people in the White House. Even when they make the right decisions about leaving, uh, they won't talk about uh, the reasons that it's the right decision. Yeah. And, and in the case of Joseph Biden, I, I want to be, uh, be clear, Medea, that we're not, you know, making this esoteric kind of uh, general statement about, uh, you know, politicians not being honest about their involvement in in these kinds of conflicts, because, you know, while I, I absolutely agree, Biden was absolutely right to pull U.S. troops out of Afghanistan. This should have been done years ago. We, of course, know that, um, especially since the publication of the Afghanistan papers in 2019, where we did uh, find out the information that you just mentioned uh, about the generals on the ground lying about uh, how, you know, so-called victory was right around the corner, knowing full well that it was not. But There is also this issue of Biden's whitewashing his own record uh, in regard to Afghanistan, because, you know, he said in his speech, oh, I'll always be straight with the American people. And, you know, I'm the guy who stopped the surge when it when, you know, when Obama pushed it. But what he doesn't say is that he he voted for the initial invasion of Afghanistan in the first place. And he supported uh, every action other than the surge. So I think that even as we are celebrating, and that's not even the right word, even as we are acknowledging that the United States government has finally done the right thing in extricating itself with, you know, from boots on the ground troops in Afghanistan, because as you pointed out, we don't know about drone bombings and, and covert operations and whether they will still go on. I think we do have to be clear of the complicity of politicians like Joe Biden in perpetuating this whole thing in the first place, Medea. Well, I don't mind if there's a politician who has finally seen the light, uh, but then tell it to us straight. I was wrong in voting for this. I was wrong in supporting both uh, the going into Iraq as well as the going into Afghanistan. Uh, uh, that, that Barack Obama was wrong when he said Afghanistan was, quote, the good war. Um, but, you know, I, 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 I don't expect that coming from Joe Biden. He's tried to uh, reverse the history on many occasions, including uh, about his support for the Iraq war. And he's very much a member of, in good standing, of the military-industrial complex. And a lot of his reasoning for wanting to get out of Afghanistan is a pivot to China and the way that he is ginning up the conflict with both China and Russia is extremely dangerous. So he's not a peacemaker. He's not somebody we can rely on. It is it is good that he understood that the American public wants us to get out of these wars, but I think he doesn't understand that the American public doesn't want him to start new wars. And that's where I feel that we have to be uh, pushing 
for something similar to the Vietnam syndrome that came after the tremendous loss in Vietnam, where the American public had an aversion to U.S. invasion, uh, to now have that same kind of uh, public counterweight to uh, militarism that says, no, we don't want to get involved in a conflict with China or any other country. And I think now is the time to say we should uh, cut the military budget in, in half and use that money for all the needs we have at home, as well as for our obligations towards the people of Afghanistan. Yeah, that that is absolutely true. I agree with you. You know, and in regard to uh, uh, the obligations toward the people of of Afghanistan, you know, I'm thinking about Medea. How uh, in Biden's speech, he, you know, he he did blame uh, the Afghan military, the Afghan uh, leaders, who, you know, again, I don't think we can say this enough, were all thrown together and propped up by the United States. These were not people that the Afghan people themselves chose uh they they didn't vote for them they the these were constructs of uh US invasion occupation and imperialism but uh there has been a report that i found to be absolutely fascinating called what we need to learn lessons from 20 years of afghanistan reconstruction that details how over 145 billion dollars spent on supposedly reconstruction efforts added up to only minimal project progress. Now, why? Because obviously the U.S. didn't have a clear strategy, you know, because Biden was clear about what the strategy was yesterday. They were only going into Afghanistan to uh, deal with the people involved in 9-11 and anything else was basically irrelevant. Uh, strict timelines weren't paid attention to. Uh, there was an, a, a, apparently an, a, a perpetual sense of imminent departure uh, that blunted progress. So I guess the experts and so on were always expecting a way out. So they didn't put any effort into these reconstruction project progress. But here is a part of this report that I find particularly just fascinating and appalling. And I don't know what else to call it. The report found that U.S. personnel in Afghanistan were often unqualified. This was the U.S. personnel now that were unqualified and poorly trained and qualified personnel were hard to retrain. The report said that Defense Department police advisors that were sent to train Afghan police forces did not have the experience. So to compensate, what did they do? They watched the television shows Cops and NCIS, according to the report. (laughs) Now, Medea, this has been exposed as the level of experience or inexperience that the U.S. forces who went in to train the Afghan forces, that the Biden administration, that Biden himself just said didn't have the will to fight, just cowered in the face of the Taliban. But the truth is that it was the U.S. forces who were unqualified and had to watch bad U.S. cop propaganda to do whatever they were supposed to do. So, I mean, again, I think this is just another one of those examples of how many levels of not just failure, but absolute imperialist incompetence that is covered by uh, hubris, I guess, arrogance that has been proven absolutely deadly for the Afghan people. 
Well, that's right. And I didn't have direct experience around the military or police training, but having been to Afghanistan several times, I did have direct experience with the uh, Pentagon's efforts at, quote, development. And it was astounding to see these 21, 22-year-old kids from the, the countryside in the United States who were never involved in anything like this, even at home, who were then in charge of massive amounts of money to be doing things uh, that the military should not be involved in at all. And uh, just the the money that was sloshing around, uh, waiting to be poorly used, to be uh, 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 flown out to Dubai for big mansions there, Uh, you know, it it was just impossible to control. And just as you said about the training for uh, police and military, the same thing was true in terms of a lot of these, quote, development projects that in the end um, didn't even get done. And um, if they did, didn't last for very long. $300 million a year, Medea, is what this report says was being spent paying salaries to non-existent personnel in the Afghan security forces. You couple that with these, as you just pointed out, which I didn't even realize myself, 20 and 22-year-old Americans who, I mean, that's barely two years in college age, who are in charge of reconstruction efforts in a country they know nothing about, involving a people they know nothing about and and who many had open contempt for because they viewed them as backward and uh, not as advanced as Americans were, which was something that we saw uh, in the 2019 Afghanistan papers. I I mean, from this uh, extraction, from this withdrawal and all of the details that are coming to fore about the level of dysfunction and incompetence of the United States, uh, the military leaders, the so-called experts, the mercenaries, and and the politicians, quite honestly, who who had to have known all about this and, and all of these complexities, but just kept throwing money at these folks. What are the lessons that we should be learning? We on the left, we in the streets, we anti-imperialists, that will help us to mobilize to keep another Afghanistan from happening. It has been so frustrating doing the anti-war work, how difficult it's been for years to link this with the domestic issues. Uh, We've said over and over again, with this money, we could have eliminated hunger. We could have built Uh, all the housing for unhoused people, we could have eliminated student debt, and on and on. But it didn't really get resonance among uh, these groups that are working on those issues. I think now is the time to really reinforce where all this money went, the black hole that it was dumped into, uh, and to say that we deserve a peace dividend now. And let's save $350 billion and invest that in all of these domestic issues that we need so much. Uh, So I think it's important for us to uh, get other groups on board right now to be saying, yes, it's important that we get out of Afghanistan. 
yes, important we learn our lessons uh, that military should not be used for uh, invasions and occupations. Yeah, and and I'm just thinking about uh, uh, Medea, the idea of a, a poverty draft in the military where, you know, young people who are 18, 19, 20, 21, 22 years old have no other option but to go into the military to get an education, to get health care, to get housing. Um, and then we wonder why 20 year olds and 22 year olds end up in charge of nation building and reconstruction in a country that they've never been to doing projects that they have no experience with and having to watch cop shows in order to train other people ostensibly how to fight an enemy that actually uh, this country had a hand in creating, you know, but we are uh, out of time for this segment. We want to thank you so much, Medea Benjamin, for joining us. You are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social and economic movement shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social and economic movements shaping the world around us. All right. Today, we are talking about a questionable report about war crimes committed by Hamas and the Palestinians against Israel from Human Rights Watch. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation by Miko Paled, human rights activist and author of The General's Son, Journey of an Israeli in Palestine and Injustice, the story of the Holy Land Foundation Five. Miko, thanks so much for joining me today. Pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, so this report by Human Rights Watch is really concerning uh, because, first of all, Human Rights Watch itself is a concerning organization, but they claim that the rockets fired at Israel by Palestinians in Gaza during the conflict in May amounted to war crimes. Now, Human Rights Watch says that the attacks, quote, flagrantly violated the laws of war, at least in the conflict in which at least 260 people were killed in Gaza in that 11 days of fighting. Now, Human Rights Watch the month before said that Three Israeli air airstrikes it investigated also amounted to war crimes. But I'm wondering, Miko, how you are situating this report from Human Rights Watch that conflates Palestinian uh, actions with Israeli actions. Well, you know, I think uh, Human Rights Watch is uh, is interested in, in uh, human rights. And it's interesting in pointing out uh, violations of human rights and uh, war crimes. Then needs to focus on the fact that too many people in Gaza are have been, you know, locked up in a in open air prison with no access to water, no access to um, basic medical care, no access, no, no ability to travel or, or live. And on top of that, they're being bombed regularly by Israel. So I think this is a political game that they're playing. They had to, you know, play that 
typical uh, balance game where they pretend you know, we're talking about two equal sides. To you know, to equate to equate uh, the struggle of people fighting for their liberation with the meager means that they have with war crimes is uh, is is really quite pathetic. Yeah, Human Rights Watch in their report even said that the rockets and mortars that Palestinian armed groups fired lack guidance systems and are prone (laughs) to misfire. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, making them extremely inaccurate and thus inherently indiscriminate when directed toward areas with civilians. Launching such rockets to attack civilian areas is a war crime. Now, it sounds to me, Miko, like these folks at Human Rights Watch are completely ignoring the fact that in in regard to, you know, military hardware, uh, the Palestinian people uh, and Hamas in particular are using rudimentary, the most rudimentary uh, weaponry to defend themselves in armed conflict that wasn't started by them uh, against a sophisticated, uh, vastly outfunded, you know, compared to them, uh, U.S.-backed military that is Israel. And they're actually blaming the Palestinian people for really being too poor not to have nice guided rockets. And I feel like this is a ridiculous statement to make, but I mean— is that basically what they're saying, that, that the Palestinians committed a war, war crime because they don't have guided missiles? Well, that's what, that's what it seems to say, yes, that the, the problem is that the, the weapons are not sophisticated enough and therefore they're committing war crimes. It makes absolutely no sense. I mean, the, the, the entire thing is, is, is a joke. It's an attempt to uh, it's an attempt to cozy up to Israel and, and again, to... to to play this ridiculous balance game where the two sides are, are um, presented as two equal sides and both guilty or both not guilty. You know, like people say both sides are wrong, both sides have made mistakes, that sort of thing. And and that's really all it is. And you can't make sense once you go down that once you go down that route, then you can, nothing you say makes sense because Palestinians are clearly fighting for their lives and for their independence trying to defend themselves, trying to defend their children, trying to defend their, um, you know, their cities with whatever meager means they have. You know, if there's ever been a self-defense, the Palestinians' attempt to fight off Israel is that. It's self-defense. Uh, so to blame the Palestinians for committing war crimes is, 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 um, is really shameful. It's, 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 it's really, it would be funny. It would be a joke if it wasn't. So absolutely, terribly, terribly tragic. Yeah, you know, this group, uh, Human Rights Watch, does favor Israel. Now, sometimes they will do things like counter uh, the Israeli narrative about their actions, like when Israeli, like when Israel claimed that it was targeting uh, an underground command center, but admitted to not knowing the size or the exact location of this alleged underground command center at the time of the attack. Uh, um, so Human Rights Watch admits that Israel hasn't proven that this underground command center or even tunnels existed, but they also don't call for things that like Amnesty International calls for, which are comprehensive arms embargoes on Israel. It's baffling 
why Human Rights Watch wouldn't just do that simple thing to call for an arms embargo on Israel as it's done for other countries, including Ethiopia, Myanmar, Saudi Arabia, South Sudan, Syria, and the United Arab Emirates. So it's kind of hard not to see the bias toward Israel uh, from Human Rights Watch. But Miko, do you think there is something else at play here? Because I'm looking at all of these other countries that uh, Human Rights Watch has uh, called for an arms embargo against, and a lot of them seem to have something in common. But I, I'm wondering what you think the the other commonality might be that would uh, compel Human Rights Watch to be so uh, standoffish toward calling for an, an arms embargo against Israel? Well, I, I think it's like you said. I think it's all its all about the politics. It's all about, you know, being basically coming from a Zionist perspective um, where you blame the Palestinians. So Israel has the so-called right to defend itself. The Palestinians have no such right. Um, and, and certainly calling for an arms embargo against Israel is a very strong statement politically. And that's precisely what should happen. I mean, there should be there should be sanctions against Israel. There should be an armed total arms embargo. There should be a um, no-fly zone or a Gaza. I mean, there should be some serious serious uh, steps taken to limit Israel's attack against Palestinians everywhere. By the way, not only in Gaza, but you know that's that's a serious political statement, and 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 you need to have in the political climate that exists today in the world. Um, there needs to be a, a great deal of courage to, to stand up and say the right thing and demand the right thing for Palestinians. And they lack that. There's no, no other explanation. There's no other way to, to, to look at it. They lack the political courage to stand up and, and demand um, and the embargo, demand sanctions against the state of Israel. Yeah, the the fact that, you know, this uh, uh, organization, Human Rights Watch, seems to take the side of colonial power and a, and a colonial power that also uh, is a nuclear power. That's something that that uh, we, we don't talk about enough and claim some type of parity between the clear war crimes of Israel against Palestinians with the self-defense actions of Palestinians uh, against a nuclear power is truly not just problematic, but Miko, I feel like it makes the ability uh, for us to have a clear and decisive conversation about what Israel is doing, the kind of state it is, even more difficult because the organization calls itself Human Rights Watch and it presents itself as this uh, watchdog of people who, you know, abuse the human rights of others. But when you look deeply into their uh, policy and their narratives, we do parse out these problematic taints or twists to their coverage. I mean, th this is Human Rights Watch has been around for a long time. This is something that we constantly have to be on guard for the pro-settler colonialist misinformation coming from these kinds of outlets. But how much more difficult does this kind of information from an organization that's been around for this long and is so often quoted, um, how much more difficult does it make for us to have the public discourse to advocate for Palestine and for its freedom? 
Well, that's precisely it. They no, they don't want the, the discourse. I mean, the discourse is a, is a is a uh, largely Zionist discourse, and so they allow themselves from time to time to maybe say something which places Israel uh, in an uncomfortable position. But then they very quickly have to kind of fix it and 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 make up for it by by uh, attacking the Palestinians and discrediting themselves by doing that because there's no room to attack the Palestinians. The Palestinians. Uh, resistance has 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 is, is justified, always has been, and is sanctioned by international law. Um, you know, it's it's uh, it's a, it reminds me a little bit of, of Bernie Sanders saying we need to tone down the rhetoric. You know, as Palestinians are being slaughtered in Gaza, he's saying we need to tone down the rhetoric, which is which I believe is a terrible thing to say. We need to we need to ratchet up the ratchet up the the, the rhetoric. Against Israel, but that's precisely what it is. It's 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 a it's a it's political, and it's definitely an attempt to silence the discourse, to prevent the discourse, to prevent a, an honest and open conversation about Israeli crimes against the Palestinians, which, as you know, have been going on for some seventy-five years. You know, terrible, terrible things have gone on, and there's not been any kind of uh, accountability. At all, is not, Israel has not been held to 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 its crimes. So that's 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 part of the struggle. You know, that's precisely part of the part of the struggle is to force the discourse and move the discourse forward, and to expose Israel and to expose the hypocrisy um, as it's happening. You know, on a regular basis, whether it's Human Rights Watch, whether it's you know other organizations or politicians, that's precisely this is precisely the problem. It's precisely the challenge. Absolutely. Well, we want to thank you so much, Miko Paled, for joining us for this discussion. We are out of time for this segment. You're listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social and economic movement shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social and economic movements shaping the world around us. And it's Tuesday, which means we are having our weekly segment, Tech for the People, where we're joined by technologist Chris Garafa, the editor of TechForThePeople.org. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, Jackie, great to be back. Thank you. I am so glad that you are here to talk about this terrible, horrifying story that shouldn't be all that horrifying because this is how the system rolls. The NYPD apparently had a secret fund for surveillance tools. I mean, this is why when we talk about defunding the police, we're not really hurting anything because police departments have lots of money that they're actually not telling us about. So tell us how much money was involved in this secret fund in one of the largest police departments in the country, how long it existed, and does it exist uh, today? 
Well, if we're going, we're going back to at least 2007, the NYPD has had something, a line item called the Special Expenses Fund. Um, and according to Wired, they don't have to get city council or other approval for purchases on this fund. And they have spent over $159 million over the past 14 or so years in the Special Expenses Fund. Um, this is a, a city, I mean, the NYPD is practically a small army. And I think if we look at some of the stuff that they are buying, these are military-level uh, surveillance tools. Um, you know, in the meantime, there are, according to the Coalition for the Homeless, uh, in last year, 120,000 people slept in the city shelter system. Um, and then there are thousands more who sleep unsheltered in the streets and the subways. So we have the NYPD spending this outrageous amount of money while New Yorkers are sleeping either on the streets or in overcrowded shelters. Um, the information came from the Legal Aid Society and STOP, the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project. Uh, and they go through a number of the contracts that have been made. One of the most interesting to me being an $800,000 contract with Elbit Systems, which is an Israeli defense contractor, in fact, the biggest one. Um, and then th what they're doing with Elbit is, they say, upgrading and maintaining devices. They don't say what devices are. In fact, those are redacted. But we know that Elbit has provided uh, technology, surveillance technology for the U.S.-Mexican uh, border. Um, and they have, they call this technology, quote, field proven because they've used it also on the Palestinian people. So effectively, the NYPD is paying an Israeli company, which already gets federal money, uh, to use the surveillance technology that they also use on native lands on the U.S.-Mexico border, and also, of course, on the Palestinian people. And that's just $800,000 out of this $159 million. Um, I also think the $159 million is actually uh, a low estimate, but it's based on the realistic documents that have been found out uh, by STOP and the Legal Aid Society. Yeah, and that's $159 million that, again, as you pointed out, Chris, does not have to be approved by the New York City Council. So they're just given this money. And another one of the projects that they uh, were involved in that is just as as just scurrilous, the NYPD awarded $6.8 million to Idemia Solutions, which furnishes biometric tools, including facial recognition. And this is important because the company came under fire in 2019 after it was revealed that the NYPD enters children under 18 into facial recognition databases that were maintained by the company. Now, the contract ended just last year, but it gave the NYPD the option to renew the contract for two years. I mean, the fact that this information had to be uncovered, Chris, kind of leads me to believe that the NYPD is probably already renewed this contract or they will uh, or contracts like it uh, in the future. 
Right. And if we remember, uh, you know, uh, after the uprising or actually during the uprising last year against racism and police terror, you know, Amazon said they were going to stop selling the recognition system uh, to police. But uh, turns out they were selling it through kind of resellers and other organizations. So I firmly believe that even though they're not using recognition, as, as far as we know, the NYPD is using other systems and will continue to use them. Um, and this shows, you know, one of the limitations of something that we've talked about here. Uh, acts like the Post Act in New York, the Public Oversight of Surveillance Technology, also acts that have been that have come out in uh, places like Berkeley and Oakland, California, and actually uh, across the country. Um, you know, some of them are stronger than others. The the Post Act is great, and I fully supported it and celebrated when it was passed. But this shows, you know, the the. There's often an exception in these laws for emergency uses or, you know, uh, security uses that can only be found out later, if at all. Um, and that's the kind of that's the kind of surveillance, you know, uh, law we need is one that either prohibits emergency usage entirely or makes it, ex- you know, immediately av- makes the information immediately available to people because everything can be called an emergency. When you have a militarized police force like the NYPD that can spend one hundred and fifty nine million dollars on just surveillance technology, including uh, vans with x-ray machines in them, by the way, um, which also pose a public health risk, then, you know, there is no, they can just call anything they need uh, a, uh, you know, an emergency or a, you know, a private security matter or internal security matter. That's what we need. These We need federal laws here and they need to be strengthened significantly. Absolutely. And since you did bring up Amazon, I got to ask you about uh, Amazon's latest practice to, you know, disrespect its workers, because Amazon is apparently monitoring customer service workers, keyboard and mouse strokes, or at least they plan to uh, in an attempt, they say, to stop. I don't I don't even know what this is. Rogue workers, imposters or hackers accessing customers' data. And this is according to a confidential Amazon document that was obtained by Motherboard. But I I don't think I believe this, Chris, but what are your thoughts on what Amazon is doing? Yeah, again, great reporting by uh, Joseph Cox over at Motherboard here. You know, we're, Amazon is going to, yeah, they're, they're going to require this software that monitors every time you move the mouse or, you know, to use the keyboard on people's computers. And they're saying it's because agents are looking up information about customers, you know, that they don't have, you know, authorization to. That's not a problem that requires, uh, you know, requires spying on your workers. That's a problem that requires Amazon locking down their systems so that you can only look up the information on customers who you're trying to help, uh, you know, based on maybe phone number or email that they're contacting you with or, or whatnot, right? There are so many ways to do this. This is not something that is beyond Amazon, which is one of the, you know, the five big uh, tech and infrastructure companies. They know how to do this, but they're using this idea that they need to spy on their workers rather than actually fix their technical issues. Um, what I think this is also going to turn into a productivity uh, you know, productivity monitoring system. We know that in the factories, workers are tracked very closely with, uh, you know, with various measures about, you know, how productive they are, how many boxes they're filling, how many items they're picking. Um, and this is, this could be one of those other ways. If you're not moving your mouse, if you're not typing, then the system could think that you're just doing nothing and you're slacking off. And you know what? 
you have a right to slack off a little bit if you're dealing with a, if you're an Amazon customer care associate who is really sitting there dealing with you know customer after customer. You should be able to take a break. You should be able to just take a breath, have a glass of water. Um, so if you're not moving your mouse, if you're not you know typing, Amazon could consider that to be you know a, a period of you know non productivity. Uh, because, of course, they consider workers first to be expendable and then second just a conduit for making Amazon money. It's also just a really bad you – know, it's, it's a bad precedent because other companies can do this as well. And legally, there's nothing, uh, there's nothing wrong with it. Legally, you know, if your employer provides you a computer, they can do whatever they want with it, which is why I always tell people don't check your personal email or Facebook on your employer's computer because they don't have to tell you if they're doing something like this either. Yeah, I mean, this is not a surprise coming from the company that uh, in, in response to workers in their warehouses suffering depression and having accidents and uh, even, uh, you know, committing suicides in some cases, they installed wellness pods or what I like to call the depression closets to uh, encourage workers to keep working at that unreasonable pace. But you know what? Amazon is also collecting biometric data from consumers. And believe it or not, some senators are not happy about that and they want answers uh, for what Amazon is doing. What is that about, Chris? Yeah, Amazon thinks that your uh, palm print is worth ten dollars. Not not a ten dollar bill, just ten dollars in Amazon credit, by the way. They're not gonna just send you a check. Uh or credit, you know, your 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 bank account. They'll just give you ten dollar in credit so that you can buy more stuff from Amazon. Um so Amazon has this program called Amazon One. And it's part of their retail strategy platform. It's part of this um, you know, full, you know, they bought Whole Foods a while ago. They have opened up their own stores uh in a number of areas. Um, including stores in Seattle where you can just walk in, sign in basically uh, with your phone and then pick up what you want off the shelf and it automatically charges you when you walk out. No cashiers, no nothing. I mean, think about the level of surveillance that requires in a store. Well, Amazon also has this Amazon One where you can check in, check out with your bio, you know, biometrics like your palm print. Um, Amazon says you know they're they're looking to sell this to other stores and to use it in their own brick and mortar stores. And I think, of course, it's ironic that Amazon drove so many local retailers out of business, starting with bookstores, and now they're getting back into the uh, retail business in some areas. It seems you know it's the ultimate expansion of of capitalism as they took out everyone they needed to, they they could, and now they're going back into the businesses they shut down. This isn't something new either. You know, Facebook, uh, a number, uh, a couple of years ago, bought a product that basically they offered you $15 or so a month um, if you would let them see all of your internet traffic. Um, you know, and people used it until it was found out and uh, shut down. Um, so this is, this is a pattern that we're seeing where people are being paid um, and either, you know, either completely, you know, told or, or sometimes not told, uh, you know, the truth about what their data is going to be used for. So we do have this letter now. Uh, and this letter is from Bill Cassidy, John Ossoff, and Amy Klobuchar, all three uh, U.S. senators. And they wrote it to Andy Jassy, who is now the president and CEO of Amazon, who uh, took over after Bezos. And they're asking, you know, a number of questions that I think we do need answers to. 
does Amazon have plans to expand to Amazon One? How many third-party customers has Amazon sold it to or licensed it to? How many people have signed up for it? Is Amazon One user data ever paired of biometric data from facial recognition systems? And I think that question, uh, and there are seven total, that question, though, are they pairing it with biometric data from facial recognition systems? It gets to the heart of the issue here. Um, we already know that Amazon sells, as we've talked about a few minutes ago, the recognition, facial recognition software. Uh, there is nothing preventing Amazon, of course, from then providing biometric information like palm prints to police as well. Uh, they could create this database. They could sell this database, not just to police, but to private security forces. They could sell it to uh, really to anyone. Um or it could be breached. It could be hacked, uh, which we have seen so many times with other vendors. You know, there's so many privacy implications and issues with this Amazon One. I want to, you know, tell all, all of our listeners, um, $10 Amazon credit sounds great until you realize this is going to affect you for the rest of your life. So don't fall for it. Yeah, you know, in in the theological uh, realms, we talk about, you know, the mark of the beast and, you know, a, a, that, that you're going to have to have uh, in order to buy and sell in, in end times prophecy. And I and I think in real world technological terms, I think the beast might be Amazon, Chris. But, um, you know, those for the, uh, the last couple of minutes we have, I want to ask you about this new deep fake tool that digitally undresses pictures of women online. Now, I got to admit, I did not know what a deep fake was. I had to learn this because I'm a middle-aged lady who remembers when the World Wide Web was actually created. <laughs> so, yeah, the World Wide Web is not that old. But explain what this horrifying tool is and how expansive is it in the online environment that we're so used to using on a daily basis now? Sure. There's a tool that's floating around the internet. Uh, the Huffington Post, which is the article we're talking about here, doesn't mention the name of the tool. Sadly, it's very easy to find elsewhere. Uh, I won't mention the name of it either. Um, and it basically let you upload a picture of a woman and the site, quote, undresses them. It's, it shows you what the site thinks that they would look like nude. Um, so this is a type of deep fake, which is when you, know, you see a video or uh, a photo of somebody doing something that they weren't actually doing. It could be, you know, we've seen Mark Zuckerberg and Barack Obama having conversations. Um, but those were deep fakes. Um, this technology, I mean, this is offensive. It is disgusting that this is happening. I have helped friends. I've helped women um, have this kind of content taken down. And the companies, the social media companies and Google don't make it easy. In fact, as this article points out, sometimes you're better off showing that you have copywritten an image of yourself. Um, and that's and it's easier to get the image taken down that way rather than saying this is an image that is, first of all, not me and is extremely sexually explicit and embarrassing to me. Mm. It's, it's really kind of horrifying the, the, the way this uh, wonderful tool of the Internet uh, has taken us. Uh, we have to always be on guard to protect our privacy, not just from big corporations like Amazon, but from these kinds of tools that are uh, propped up by anonymous users for nefarious reasons. But we want to thank Chris Garafa so much for joining us for this segment. We are at the end of the hour as well, but we're back for a second hour right after this. You're listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social and economic movement shaping the world around us. 
by any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. We are back, ladies and gentlemen. I'm here, Jackie Lukeman. Sean Blackman is on vacation. And it, it, it is Tuesday, August 17th. And we will open the phone lines to take your calls at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time today, as every day, to hear whatever you have to say, whatever is on your mind, anything that is in your heart. But that is not the only way you can reach out and touch us here at By Any Means Necessary, because all of our allies, accomplices, and comrades can reach out and touch us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320 at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. But they can also hit us up on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube at BAM Necessary. Then our shows can be downloaded on iTunes where we would very much appreciate a good rating. Don't just listen and don't rate. They can also hear us on iHeartRadio, Spotify, Spreaker, Stitcher, and lots of other podcast platforms. They can listen to us live on SputnikNews.com and on their radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. And at the top of the hour, I must say that today is the birthday of Marcus Mosiah Garvey, founder of the United Negro Improvement Association, the largest mass organization of Africans around the world ever. But I should also note that Garvey also published the influential newspaper, The Negro World, which he started as the official publication of the UNIA on his birthday in New York City. And Garvey also designed the iconic red, black and green flag, otherwise known as the Pan-Africanist flag or the black nationalist flag, the flag that hangs outside of the Lukman home in 1921 on August 13th. Uh, it was for, I'm sorry, it was formally adopted by the UNIA, the red, black and green, green flag on August 12th, 1920. The catechism published by the UNIA reads, red is the color of the blood, which must, which men must shed for their redemption and liberty. Black is the color of the noble and distinguished race to which we belong. Green is the color of the luxuriant vegetation of our motherland. Happy revolutionary birthday, Marcus Garvey. And thank you for your legacy, which lives on. And speaking of that legacy of Pan-Africanism, we are happy to be joined today by Ajamu Baraka, National Organizer of the Black Alliance for Peace, Ajamu, thank you so much for joining us today. Jacqueline, it's my my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And you know, I'm really glad that you joined us on this day 
this just happens to be Marcus Garvey's birth, birthday. And, and you know, I, I'm struck by the need for us to continue Garvey's legacy of internationalism among African people precisely because of the threat that his work posed to the rest of the world. I mean, when we talk about Ajamu, the Negro world, Garvey's newspaper that was published in 40 countries around the world, uh, had a distributorship of hundreds of thousands, but was also banned in uh, um, countries where colonial powers still had control, countries in Africa and the Caribbean. But students, workers and other folks smuggled the papers in where the people wanted them. And Garvey was so serious about uh, delivering information to the oppressed masses around the world. There was a Spanish language section of the Negro world that was begun in 1923, a French language section that was begun in 1924. And there was even an intersectional part with Amy Jacques Garvey adding a page called Our Women and What They Think during her tenure as editor. So, I mean, when I look at the legacy of Garvey, just from the perspective of how important it was for him to deliver information to Africans throughout the diaspora reporting on things that were going on to black people in the United States and to black people that uh, were around the world. I I can't help but remember his words, Ajamu, liberate the minds of men and ultimately you will liberate the bodies of men. And I feel like that is still such a threat to this system, especially as we are watching things unfold in places like like Afghanistan and other places around the world. Well, you're absolutely right. The the thing that uh, we have to remember about uh, the Garvey movement and why it was perceived to be such a threat to European powers is that when you talk about uh, the uplift of African people, when you talk about the uh, liberation of the African continent. Uh, you're talking about a uh, you're declaring basically war against colonialism, because at that point in history, most of Africa was still under colonial domination, as was most of the Caribbean, where you had uh, 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 millions of of African people. Um, and so, when you talk about the need for Africa to unite and for African people to uh, look to Africa and to uh, liberate their minds, you are talking about a potential subversive force from the point of view of the authorities. And that's why the Negro world was, in fact, banned, because it was seen as a subversive copy. Um, And so, you know, this is the the legacy of of Marcus Garvey uh, continuing the, the attempts on the part of African people to redefine themselves or redefine their relationship between themselves and the various colonial powers at a time when there was tremendous upheaval uh, in the Western world with the uh, Russian Revolution of 1917, uh, going into the 1920s and the uh, intensification of the economic uh, crisis and contradictions of the colonial capitalist system, 
uh, the last thing that Europeans wanted to hear uh, was something about Africans attempting to free themselves from colonial domination. Yeah, and, you know, this is still such an incredibly important topic for us. It's a it's an incredibly important issue for us, even as we're watching, you know, obviously the chaos ensue in Afghanistan. And, and, and I'm wondering, you know, from an internationalist, pan-Africanist, uh, radical black anti-war perspective, what your top of your mind thoughts are about the ongoing issue, or it's not an issue. We 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 knew that this was going to happen, but but the ongoing um, uh, chaos. There's no other word I can think of right now uh, that's unfolding in Afghanistan. And what do we need to really focus on here in this moment? Well, you know, Jacqueline, the, the Black Alliance of Peace was one of the few anti-war and imperialist formations in the U.S. that that followed the situation in, in Afghanistan very, very closely. Uh, we were quite clear that there was going to be uh, a serious break, that the uh, Afghan government was uh, fragile and that it was not going to be able to, uh, to survive once the U.S. Uh, decided to finally withdraw from that situation. Uh, but we were concerned that the uh, extraction of the U.S. from Afghanistan would not be a complete one, that the U.S. authorities would find ways to try to either re-enter, like how they did under the Obama administration where they re-entered into Iraq, or that they were going to relocate, which is still a possibility, uh, to nations outside of, of Afghanistan and still um, uh, intervene from time to time into that, that territory. Uh, and still play a role of of destabilizing uh, Central Asia. Uh, and so we were trying to bring attention to those possibilities and try to galvanize opposition uh, to those, those those potential policies on the part of the U.S. and NATO. Uh, but we didn't, we didn't get a lot of traction. There was really very few people who were really concerned about Afghanistan. Even after uh, the Trump administration negotiated uh, the, the so-called peace process, it became clear that there would be uh, some kind of serious uh, change in U.S., NATO, uh, and Afghan uh, relations. Uh, it wasn't really until the, uh, the scene that unfolded over the last couple of weeks uh, with the uh, Taliban uh, 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 making the kind of territorial uh, advances that we knew they were going to make um, and catching uh, U.S. policymakers uh, by surprise by uh, beginning the process of circling Kabul uh, and then eventually entering the capital a few days ago and, in fact, taking power. So, you know, this is a situation that we've seen unfold for quite some time. Uh, there's going to be a so-called chaos for a while because you, you're seeing now a, a transitional process uh, from the uh, Afghan uh, puppet government uh, to the Taliban. Um, and you're seeing uh, various nations around Afghanistan jockey to uh, ensure that uh, their interests will be protected uh, and that um, the result of this change in government 
uh, would uh, not completely further destabilize the entire region. So this is a momentous situation in Afghanistan, and one that we uh, really believe that uh, anyone who's concerned about uh, imperialism, uh, who's concerned about the continued uh, endless wars uh, being fought by the U.S., uh, would be very much interested in, and that we need to not only follow what's going to happen uh, in Afghanistan for the next few days, or the next few, few weeks, but to make the connection, Jacqueline, to make the connection between what is happening in Afghanistan and the continuation of U.S. Uh, involvement uh, in nations uh, like Iraq, uh, where they have been uh, uh, ordered or uh, uh, asked to leave, but they refuse. Um, uh, in Syria, where the U.S. is still uh, uh, illegally uh, occupying, um, uh, with the, the, the failed state of, of Libya, uh, with the expansion of U.S. military activity on the African continent. I mean, we are seeing, you know, uh, the consequence of, of U.S. strategy that relied on military force, that relied on subversion, uh, and relied on propping up uh, neo-colonial puppets, but when you have any any break in that chain of reaction, like in this case, uh, the inability of the Afghan government to be able to maintain itself once the U.S. began to uh, began to physically withdraw from that that situation, uh, then you have a kind of of of, of dramatic change that we are seeing unfold uh, in Afghanistan. Yeah, and, and you pointed out something about this uh, whole conflict in Afghanistan that I I actually didn't realize or, or I forgot or I think I was just so kind of obsessed with comparing uh, the movie Charlie, Charlie Wilson's War, which is just ridiculous. I'm still just appalled that Hollywood made that movie and made this whole situation about the U.S. involvement in Afghanistan a comedy drama as if, you know, it's a piece of entertainment. But you tweeted that, look, I'm no Biden fan, that, but the idea that the debacle in Afghanistan is only uh, is his only is nonsense. The errors with Afghanistan started under Carter and his decision to create a right wing Islamic force. Can you explain what you mean there? Because I think this is really important in the way we look at presidents, imperialism, and and how we like to look at Democratic presidents as better than Republicans or Democrats in general as better than Republicans, and especially Carter, how we look at him as, well, he was the best out of all of them. But when we're talking about foreign policy and imperialism, maybe not. Well, you know, it's, 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 it's a very uh, a good question and, and very uh, astute observation that when it comes to, to U.S. imperial policy, the reality is that there's there's not much difference between Republicans and and Democrats. The only uh, differences might be around uh, imperial strategy, and that's really about it. The the my my tweet was to remind people that as everyone's concerned about uh, the plight of of women uh, in Afghanistan, they're concerned about what they uh, define as as so-called progress uh, in that country. Uh, over the last 20 years as a consequence of the presence of the U.S. puppet government, that, you know, you, you put this in historical perspective. You, we, we need to be reminded that, you know, you can't just blame uh, Biden 
for uh, this so-called loss. Uh, when everybody knew that Afghanistan had been a military loss more than 10 years ago. Uh, but you also have to remind ourselves that, that the U.S. shouldn't have been in that space in the first place. And so you go back to at least the, the 1970s and 1979 or so, um, uh, where uh, uh, President Carter's uh, uh, foreign policy advisor uh, National Security Advisor Brzezinski uh, 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 laid out very proudly how they basically trapped or enticed uh, the Soviet Union to uh, intervene into into Afghanistan uh, as part of, in essence, sort of a revenge, if you will, from the uh, defeat uh, by the Vietnamese in in Vietnam in, in 1975. Um, they knew that there was very little appetite for direct confrontation with the Soviet Union. In fact, um, the, you know, the U.S. population was suffering from what people refer to as the uh, Vietnam Syndrome. Uh, but, you know, U.S. policymakers were still itching for an opportunity to kind of get, it, get back at the Soviet Union. And they saw the situation unfolding in Afghanistan as that possibility. So they... Brzezinski uh, talked about how they entice uh, through subversion uh, and destabilization the situation in Afghanistan where you had a, a, uh, a left-leaning uh, government, a progressive government attempting to build a, a society in, in Afghanistan where women had uh, equal rights, uh, where there was uh, the ability to access education and employment, uh, where there was, quote-unquote, uh, a modern society being built, uh, but it was because it was a left government uh, that had ties with the uh, Soviet Union. Uh, they destabilized that situation and enticed the Soviets to invade uh, Afghanistan militarily, which they did. Uh, they went in to uh, prop up uh, their their sister uh, government, if you will. And as a consequence, uh, working with the uh, ISI in out of Pakistan, the Pakistani uh, intelligence uh, agency and military uh, uh, apparatus, uh, they began the process of, of recruiting uh, jihadists or uh, radical Islamists from around the world to engage the Soviet, uh, uh, the Soviet monster, the Soviet. Uh, uh, devils, the the uh, atheists uh, who were uh, in the process of propping up their atheist government uh, in that country, and because you had such a uh, a political situation in Afghanistan, in the rural parts of of, of Afghanistan, uh, with its particular kinds of circumstances, with its tribal uh, realities and its its religious fervor, it became a very uh, uh, it, it, it was a very advantageous uh, situation that the U.S. could take advantage of. And so they had willing uh, participants uh, in Afghanistan. And then you add the jihadists from around the world uh, within, with U.S. arms funneled through uh, Pakistan. And before you, you knew it, you had, the, you had the Soviets bogged down in a uh, military conflict, very similar in some ways to what the U.S. was involved in in Vietnam. So if you want to understand uh, Afghanistan, you've got to take you got to go all the way back and look at the machinations of U.S. policymakers 
are from from Jimmy Carter forward. All of them have been implicated uh, in this situation we see we're watching unfolding in Afghanistan today. That is the absolute truth. That's a fact. And that's history, folks. And that's why it's so important. But we are going to take the first break of the hour. We will be back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open, my friends. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I am still here and I continue to be joined very happily by Ajamu Baraka. And we have a couple callers on the line. First up, Tarif Simon. Tell us what's on your mind. Thanks for taking my call. First of all, I'd like to say free joining science, hands off Haiti. Okay. The situation with uh, in the Eurasia, then with Afghanistan, you know, it, it took a major chess piece off the um, the board game, right? Dealing with the West, and they put it in the laps of um, China and Pakistan and Russia, which is going, which is part of the multipolarism world, right? Okay, now the West sees this. Now you got crazy articles coming out talking about uh, giving nukes to Taiwan. So Taiwan can keep China at bay, and now it, in my opinion, it affects it affects the Modi government because the next the next government that, that might get in power in India might be a uh, 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 Indian government that might work with the Belt Initiative might join China, all right? And also it gives hope to um, um, Haiti. Well, if they, you know they, if they get rid of the corruption there, then maybe they can start working with China and China can bring them big old trucks and tractor equipment there and start building roads and power plants, then they get, you know, it'd be all right. So it shook it, it sent shockwaves throughout the world when um Afghanistan failed, government failed, but at the same time it gave people options around the world as well. So you don't have to go unipolar, you can go multipolar. That's all I wanna say. All right. Thanks a lot for your call, Tarif. Glad to hear from you. Hope to hear from you again soon. And we've got another caller on the line. Comrade from D.C., tell us what's on your mind. Hi, this is Comrade from Washington, D.C. Thank you for taking my call. I just wanted to ask Mr. Baraka about the, um, there were some uh, speculations from the ground that, or based off of stuff happening on the ground that the Taliban and the U.S. military were actually coordinating the takeover, and I think that almost makes the fact that the Taliban was in the um, palace taking photos while the U.S. forces were taking had control over the international airport. That almost seems um, to line up. Uh, so, I'm just wondering if um, Mr. Baraka could comment on the validity of that kind of claim. Yeah, definitely. Thank you, comrade. Thanks for your call. Hope to hear from you soon. Uh, Ajama, what are your thoughts on either one of those calls? Well, I mean, I think I think both are very interesting. I, I'll start with the first one um, first. Uh, I, I think one thing we have to 
remind ourselves is that uh, that sort of um, uh, change in the international uh, uh, you know, chessboard, um, you know, the Afghanistan has not been taken off the board. It's still in play. Uh, what is going to unfold still is still remains to be seen. Um, but I think the caller is quite correct in uh, referring to how complex that area of the world is. Now, uh, we think that the Chinese are going to proceed very cautiously. Uh, they are very um, careful in terms of how they move. Uh, we don't see the Chinese uh, attempting to sort of step in and take the place of the of the U.S. The, U, the Chinese are not uh, really that interested in in trying to impose some kind of Chinese hegemony, but they are concerned about uh, their western flank. They're the uh, Xinjiang uh, province is where uh, the situation with the Uyghurs are, uh, which uh, is a Muslim population uh, that uh, uh, many of us know of now because of the intense uh, sort of scrutiny and propaganda in some cases we, we, we've been exposed to regarding that situation uh, in that province. Uh, the, the Chinese have some real concerns about, about the possibility of what kind of impact uh, having a uh, Taliban government in Afghanistan uh, might have on uh, the situation in, in, in that province. Uh, the Uyghurs, you know, have been subjected to uh, um, uh, playing a role of, of, of pawns in some ways uh, between the West and the Chinese. Uh, we, we know about the reports of massive repression. Um, and we know that the Chinese have an orientation that suggests to it that you know, any kind of attempts to succeed or any uh, 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 even potential secessionist uh, uh, movement is something that they don't respond to very well. So they're concerned about, about Afghanistan, but I think what they're concerned about is, is, is stability in that country uh, and to ensure that uh, it would, would not be the launching or platform for any kind of subversive activity uh, in their country. And I think if they get uh, those kinds of assurances from a Taliban government, uh, I think that they'd be absolutely fine. Now, in terms of the of India, India is a very important player too. Um, and of course, India has some very serious issues with uh, of, of Pakistan uh, that has played an uh, interesting role in Afghanistan. Like, uh, I think it's quite clear that uh, the Taliban would not have been able to sustain its military um, uh, capabilities without uh, uh, arms and supplies. Uh, being funneled through Pakistan, even though Pakistan for a long time was a so-called U.S. ally also. But uh, the Pakistan, uh, Pakistan has, has, has its own set of interests in the region, which means they has, it, it played a very adroit sort of uh, uh, game uh, with the U.S. and other uh, regional and international forces. So it's a very, very complex situation. But I think the call is also correct in uh, pointing out the, the the shift that even some U.S. policymakers are making or made by uh, abandoning, if you will, Afghanistan. And that is the shift toward the Pacific. Uh, they're concerned with containing uh, the Chinese, which means that you know the importance of, of Afghanistan was 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 lessened over the over the last 
uh, 10 years or so. And so the real shift we're going to see and the real uh, intensification of conflict, potentially, uh, hot, hot and cold, uh, is going to be in the Pacific realm. Uh, because of the U.S. obsession with trying to uh, contain uh, the Chinese. So it's a very complex situation. So the chessboard continues to be played, but, you know, the, the, the figures uh, are, are slightly different. In terms of, of, of comrades' uh, uh, question, it's quite clear uh, that there was some kind of cooperation. It, you know, and, and whether that, that cooperation or, the, or what kind of agreements took place either between the Taliban and the U.S. or the Taliban and various factions inside the country, various tribes inside the country uh, that uh, resulted in uh, the military uh, and various other tribal forces deciding that they were going to switch sides. They were no longer going to continue to uh, to fight what they saw as a losing cause. So it was quite clear that the U.S. was, in fact, going to leave the country. Now, we know that the Taliban was on the uh, outskirts of the city um, and that they uh, claimed that they weren't ready to enter into the city until there was going, going to be an orderly transfer of power. Um, now, how that happened? Um, uh, remains to be seen. The details of it, that is. But clearly, uh, President uh, Ghani uh, left. Uh, we don't know how that happened. Uh, and there was a, a, a vacuum that the uh, Tali- Taliban um, uh, filled very quickly the very next morning. Uh, so, you know, it, it remains to be seen just what's in play. It's clear that the Biden administration and Biden last night did not really reveal all of the agreements and all of the discussions that are ongoing in Afghanistan. But, you know, there has to be a reason uh, why the Taliban was able to move so swiftly and to basically enter into Kabul without a shot being fired. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we we don't have definitive information on that second question, uh, but it's looking very, very uh, suspicious and very, very interesting. Walks like a duck, uh, quacks like a duck. Certainly, <laughs> I think uh, we can pretty much uh, conclude that there are some ducks involved. And it, the duck is the U.S. military and U.S. Uh, 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 imperialism and coordination once again. But we do have a couple other callers on the line. Mike from the district. Thanks, Mike, for calling. Tell us what's on your mind. First of all, I wasn't even going to call in when it comes to Joe Biden. But, but when you mention that red, black, and green flag, that's the real reason why I call them. But before I get on to that, in reference to Joe Biden, I don't expect Joe Biden to give a damn about um, brown countries. He's a white man and with racist tendencies. So that, that didn't surprise me one bit with that crazy uh, speech that he made. But the only thing that really made me angry about Joe Biden, he could at least have the dignity to give his sympathy to those people that was fall to their deaths. When that airplane or the white saber leaving that country and you see these brown people running with the plane and then some of them was hanging on that plane and it was plunging to those, it was plunging to death, to that death. That was the most horrific thing that I ever saw. Now, I didn't expect that, you know, to me, even though Joe Biden didn't, you know, get his sympathy about that, I feel that Pamela Harris should at least comment on that herself, being a woman of color, even, even be frank on she's a black woman. 
she should at least make some kind of comment or gave some kind of sympathy, you know, to those brown people that, you know, that plunged to their death just seeing the white saviors, you know, leaving that country. So that, that really rubbed me the wrong way. But once again, I want to thank you, Ms. Newsom, for mentioning the red, black, green flag, because I did not hear any other stations that was really talking about that flag. And it's very important if we want to try to wake up some of our young brothers and sisters to be proud of their, to be proud of being black, that red, black, and green flag mean a lot. And I remember when I was at a store and doing uh, the pride money, and, that, and the pride flag was up, which I don't have a problem with. That's their flag. They have every right to have the flag up on their month. And as I was in the store, I asked for a clerk, well, okay, am I going to see a red, black, and green flag up doing, you know, Black August or, or, or doing Kwanzaa? And they're like, well, you know, some of the store, you know, the owners of the store might have a problem with that. I'm like, why? With the uh, powerful purchasing power of the black community, why should that be a problem? Well, we don't want to offend anybody. I said, so you feel that the red, black, and green flag is offensive? I said, okay, well, I won't be shopping in this store no more. So that's why, you know, when you mention that red, black, and green flag, and it seems like that, you know, that I don't know if that flag is losing its meaning a little bit to black people. That's something that that, that kind of bothers me a little bit. So that's all I like to say. Peace. All right. Peace. Thank you so much for calling, Mike. Uh, hope to hear from you again. Always glad to hear from you. We have another caller on the line. Next up is Keith. Keith, what's going on? Tell us what's on your mind. Well, uh, Jacqueline, another fantastic show. Another fantastic guest. What else can I say? I just wanted to uh, fact check a, a bit with uh, the guest. And what I wanted to say was, is I'll go down my list. Is it possible that Cabell fell so fast because of a corrupt U.S.-backed government? That is to say, the president uh, absconded with all kind of money to move to Pakistan, and they knew that this person was corrupt, so there was no buy-in from the population. Is that possible? Two, is China uh, a... Um, at the core of why we stayed so long, given that there are massive, uh, uh, you know, uh, natural resources like iron, copper, cobalt, lithium, uh, opium, everything. And the Chinese were there picking all of the stuff and, you know, mining with no problem. And the U.S. couldn't get their hands on it. And then the second motive for why they might be there, geopolitical strategy, a base near China, if you will, a beachhead on the border of China. Now, I hope I didn't get too many questions mixed up, but can you can your guest address that, please? Thank you. Thank you so much, Keith, for calling. Hope to hear from you again soon. Ajama, what are your thoughts on Keith's questions or, you know, any other caller's comments? Oh, very, very good questions and very good comments on the first uh, caller. Um, you know, let me let me just make make. Uh, two comments, because the comments I want to make also is related to the question from uh, from Comrade uh, regarding the uh, role of the U.S. and whether or not there was some kind of agreement. Um, I, I think that that they have, that they can explain how easy uh, the uh, Taliban took retook the city, and this is also related to the second caller. Also, I think that there was in fact some kind of agreement, and I think though that the Taliban may have double crossed. Uh, the U.S. Uh, with the with the timing of of what happened and with the taking of the city, I think that the agreement may have been that uh, there was going to be a transfer of power, uh, and that the uh, U.S. was going to uh, insert forces. Uh, they will would have would have allowed a more uh, uh, orderly uh, extraction of U.S. personnel and their uh, uh, ally personnel. 
uh, from Afghanistan, the interpreters and other people who uh, work with the U.S. state, uh, but that uh, certain situations unfolded that uh, uh, compelled the Taliban to enter the city uh, before that was set up at the airport. And Comrade said that uh, the uh, that uh, the situation with the airport uh, was that it was under the control of of the U.S. Well, the U.S. is really under, on, only controlling the military side of the airport. Uh, in many of these airports in the global south, in particular the ones that are under the control of of the U.S., you will find that that the major airport will have both a commercial side and a military side. Uh, and the same thing is true there in Kabul. And so the U.S. military right now, uh, I think they're moving to control the commercial part of the airport um, uh, today. But yesterday, uh, they didn't have that kind of control. So, you know, the kind of chaos that that that, that uh, um, unfolded yesterday was as a consequence of, uh, I think, a, a miscommunication uh, and uh, just in the heat of battle, things that happen on the ground that uh, helped to create that situation. But, you know, I think the call is also correct that in the end, uh, the the decision or the agreement uh, was an agreement that said basically uh, Taliban people who uh, 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 colluded with the U.S., uh, now that the U.S. was shifting its focus and its interests, that they were basically expendable, uh, which is some, something that you would think after all of these various historical experiences, uh, most people in the world would understand that basically uh, you can collaborate, collude with uh, these European powers uh, as long as you are valuable to them. But when you are no longer uh, valuable, then basically they move on to something else. And it doesn't really matter what may happen to you uh, and your family or your nation. And we've seen this again uh, unfold uh, with the situation with Afghanistan. So, you know, one of the reasons why uh, it, it, that, that happened uh, in the way it happened, uh, are those those circumstances I just uh, responded to, but also to what the second caller uh, uh, alluded to. And that is, you know, one of the reasons why, you know, uh, the Afghan military didn't want to continue to fight was because of the corruption, because they saw that basically the, the small minority that had been put in place by the U.S. state was abandoning the fight, and that that government had no real social base anyway. And so the question for them was, do you continue to fight and sacrifice for something that is already a, a lost cause? And so that's why they stopped the, their, their, their uh, engagement with the Taliban. And yes, there's tremendous amounts of resources in Afghanistan, more than $1 trillion. The Chinese were, in fact, there, but they were not unencumbered. And, you know, the, the Belt and Road process that the Chinese are putting in place is seen as a threat by the West. But that Belt and Road initiative, uh, where parts of Afghanistan will be incorporated uh, in Pakistan, uh, that's still in play. And the U.S. is still not out of the uh, process of what they unfold in Afghanistan and, and also there in Central Asia. That's definitely true. Well, we're going to move to another break, but we will be back. Please stay with us here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. By Any Means Necessary.
Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are still open, my friends, 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. And I continue to be joined by Ajamu Baraka. And Ajamu, I'm glad you mentioned the vast mineral resources in uh, Afghanistan because Ben Norton tweeted uh, a little earlier today. um, He said, stop repeating the lie that the U.S. spent trillions on Afghanistan and got nothing. The war was never about nation building, which, of course, you know, Biden, uh, uh, made clear in his speech last night, it was about exploitation. And Ben tweets that 80 to 90 percent of U.S. investment in exploiting Afghanistan returned to the U.S. Econ- economy. And that was largely in the form of the money that defense contractors, uh, mercenaries, these so-called security companies uh, and the like made the U.S. pillaged, not funded Afghanistan, they the money that was spent in this country didn't go to anything other than the pockets of other U.S. backed companies and its and their allies. But interestingly enough, when you mention the resources now, few people in the media ever talked about the vast mineral resources in Afghanistan before now. Um between one and three trillion dollars worth of mineral resources in Afghanistan. As you mentioned, uh, the Chinese have been involved, but they have not just been allowed to just go in and take anything they wanted. But why come Ajamu all of a sudden today? CNBC posts an article saying that China may align itself with the Taliban to try to exploit Afghanistan's rare earth metals, analyst warns. Now, these analysts never made this warning about anything the United States was doing in the country for 20 years. The minerals were still there over the period of time that the U.S. the U.S. was there, but no analyst warned that the U.S. was there to exploit the country for its vast mineral uh, uh, wealth. I, I mean. This this is this this is not astounding, but I think it's really just kind of hilarious how transparent the corporate media is in its clear alignment with the U.S. government in the obvious pivot to challenge China. Exactly. I mean, it is quite pathetic that they will engage in that kind of cruel propaganda because you're absolutely right. The, the minerals have been there. And in fact, that was one of the reasons why the U.S. was attempting to try to stay itself in Afghanistan. But, but I want to I pivot back to your, your, your initial com- commentary regarding the plundering that took place or the kind of money that people made uh, in Afghanistan. Because it's important for people to understand that we talk about plunder. Are we talking about plundering uh, Afghanistan? The people of Afghanistan? No. We already have, have made the case, clearly shown that, that the, the potential of Afghanistan in terms of its mineral wealth was untapped. So how did they make the money they made over the last 20 years? Where did that money come from? 
where did the uh, where did the money come from that the military contractors got? Uh, that the the military paid for in terms of its its, its armaments. Uh, this came from the pocketbooks of the U.S. population. They plundered the U.S. budget. They plundered U.S. resources, the people's resources, by the people allowing for these endless wars to continue. All they are doing is transferring money from their pockets into the pockets of the capitalist class. So as long as you are told that you have to you know, support a $740 billion military budget, uh, that uh, you should support uh, the, the purchasing uh, of these various nations, purchasing U.S. armaments, uh, I mean, you are basically you know, transfer, transferring your resources into the hands, into the pockets of, of this ruling elite. So that's where the plundering came, that the trillions of dollars spent in Afghanistan uh, and in uh, Iraq, uh, the U.S. population, the U.S. people paid for this. And that's something we have to continue to remind ourselves of, especially when you look at the fact that uh, as the, the, the bourgeois media is bemoaning the fact that the U.S. had to leave uh, Afghanistan and, and trying to figure out what happened, how did we, quote-unquote, lose Afghanistan? Well, you should have never had it in the first place, okay? But we have to remind ourselves that more than 70% of the population wanted the U.S. to, to, to withdraw from Afghanistan. So but if, if a majority of the people want something to happen, and you would think that if you live in a democracy, your policymakers would uh, adhere to the, to the uh, uh, interests and the, and the demands of the people, then, you know, they would have been out of uh, Afghanistan years ago. But we know we don't live in a democracy and that the ruling class has its own set of interests, uh, and it will pursue those interests as long as we allow them to, in fact, do that. And that we have to remind ourselves of. Yeah. And and let's not forget, folks, that just because the on the ground troops uh, are being withdrawn and we're not even sure if they were the ones who were just deployed to assist with the evacuation will actually be withdrawn. That remains to be seen. Don't forget that the United States has this thing that it loves called drone warfare that it conducts all the time and then claims that we're not at war with people. We don't we don't have troops in the ground and, and you know, troops on the ground and, and uses that as an excuse uh, for saying, well, we're not at war with this country. We're just bombing them from the air with drones, um, you know. But Ajamu, Afghanistan is not the only place in the world where uh, there is an intense struggle for self-determination for for you know among the people because another place in the world that 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 is happening is in Colombia protests have gone on for uh more than a month several months i think over uh the since revoked tax reform youth from working class backgrounds and afro-colombian people and indigenous people arm themselves with stones and shields to protect themselves from the police and now that the protests have seemed to dissipate some as far as we uh can see now the repression comes 
So what is going on in Colombia in regard to the police going after uh, activists and protesters? And why should we continue to keep an eye on this situation in Colombia? Well, it's important to continue to to um, to watch what is unfolding in Colombia, because the U.S., for example, is the the main uh, supporter of the Colombian government. Uh, the U.S. pretends to be a champion of democracy and human rights, but yet it continues to provide support uh, to regimes around the world uh, that are the champions of human rights repression. And so we have a situation in Colombia where uh, there's been a national strike for more now more than two months. Uh, the repression has been intense and ongoing. Um, and uh, there's been no accountability on the part of the uh, U.S. government um, in terms of the fact that uh, Colombian authorities have been using armaments uh, supplied by the U.S., uh, training supplied by uh, the U.S., uh, and that there are there there is legislation in place, laws in place that says that uh, if uh, in military equipment, arms, et cetera, used by a state that the U.S., that when the U.S. supplies the state, if those arms are used in violation of, of human rights, uh, then those armaments that support must cease. So we watched that. We tried to uh, educate people on the fact that these arms are being used in that way. Uh, and then we connect also to what's happening in Colombia uh, with the people's struggles in places like Haiti and in Venezuela and in Cuba. And we see the pattern of the U.S. of supporting right-wing regimes that are in, 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 uh, 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 attempting to undermine uh, democracy and human rights, uh, attempting to reverse revolutionary processes in places like Venezuela and Cuba. Uh, and we have to remind ourselves and remind the people that the objective interests of Republicans and Democrats are the same, and that is to advance U.S. hegemony, to uh, continue to plunder the resources of people around the world, uh, and to prop up uh, this global capitalist colonial system. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned Haiti, Ajamu, because I didn't want to uh, end this discussion today without touching on Haiti, which is now uh, dealing with uh, a tropical storm after having experienced an earthquake. And, you know, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on the 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 way we. You know, we we almost infantilize Haitians in 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 these moments where where we we do things like we we have this sympathy for Haiti but we don't connect the same US imperialism too often that some of us can make very clear uh uh in in places like Af- like Afghanistan but we don't do that as much in Haiti and i'm wondering how you see that as part of or one of the weaknesses that exists on the left, where we still have this kind of uncomfortable uh, uh, uncomfortability with talking about white supremacy and racism in connection with imperialism and the effect that it has on uh, African peoples around the world, and particularly Haiti as the country that the United States and France are still making pay for daring 
to be the first black uh, uh, independent country uh, to struggle and win against imperialism. No, you, you're hitting on some um, very important points. Um, uh, try, us trying to understand why we can have uh, left uh, mobilizations uh, when it comes to very important issues like Palestine, uh, sometimes even Yemen, um, and now, you know, uh, the situation in Afghanistan. Uh, but yet when it comes to struggles of African people in places like, like Haiti, in places like Colombia, we don't get the same level of mobilization or even seems like interest. And the only way that can be explained is something related to the uh, still unresolved and really unacknowledged issues of race that we find with so much of the white left uh, in the North, uh, in the U.S. You know, yeah, the, the very fact that you can have a situation where you have people struggling to maintain the integrity of their pro- projects in Venezuela, uh, in Bolivia, in Nicaragua, uh, but yet they have to struggle to get any kind of solidarity from the white left. Uh, because, you know, their projects may not correspond to uh, the white left's imagination of how a revolution should unfold. It, it's, it's quite striking and really, uh, really reactionary. But yet we have to continue to see that unfold. And so, yes, it, it is a real serious issue because it provides opportunities uh, for the U.S. state and its uh, NATO and European allies to continue to uh, to maintain their control, they hegemony not only in in Latin America but also in Africa, with the white saviorism that we see uh, in Latin America and in Africa, uh, giving cover to what is naked economic interest. It gives cover to the fact that the U.S. is involved in providing uh, in imposing murderous sanctions on more than thirty nations, and we can't even get real uh, left opposition to that either. So we have a real issue with dealing with this unresolved issue of white supremacy uh, and the uh, collaboration on the part of some elements of the white left with their bourgeoisie when it comes to these struggles for national liberation that we see in places like Nicaragua and Venezuela. Uh, so, yeah, we got a serious issue here uh, in the U.S. Uh, and in Western Europe when it comes to the role of, of this, this white love. Yeah. And, you know, as a pan-Africanist myself, as a, an, an anti-imperialist, as an anti-capitalist, uh, and uh, as, as a struggle, as one who is involved in struggle for the liberation of the working class and poor and oppressed people, you know, it is clear, it is, it is important that we make these clear analyses of what imperialism is, the economics behind it, uh, how capitalism is evil. But if we continue to believe that we can make these analyses without making the connection between class and race with, as Ricky Ryan says in the chat, whiteness as a class, then none of us will ever be able 
to truly dismantle the system of white supremacist hegemony. Because, yes, it was uh, uh, enshrined upon the capitalist exploitation of all people. But that capitalist exploitation was targeted mostly and most intently on the people who were demonized the most by those people who controlled the system. And those people who were demonized the most were black, brown, and indigenous people. So we must deal with the interrelated issues of race and class in our left anti-imperialist, anti-capitalist analysis and work, or else we will continue to be right back where we are right now. But we are out of time for today's show. I want to thank Ajamu Baraka so much for joining us. We'll be back tomorrow with a whole new set of shows and interviews. But until then, take care of yourselves, be good to each other, and peace. By any means necessary.